0: is lovely whatever is admirable if anything is excellent or praiseworthy think about such things whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me put it into practice and the god of peace will be with you i rejoiced greatly in the lord that at last you renewed your concern for me indeed you were concerned but you had no opportunity to show it
1: We spend so much time on the hunt, but nothing ever quite does it for us. And we get so wrapped up in the hunt that it kind of makes us miserable. Black Friday shopping mania is still playing out tonight at malls across America. I am so. Satan's some big box on the holiday gift. Yes. In some cases, it did turn violent. as a culture, have lost our minds. There's no question that what it means to have achieved the American dream has increased tremendously in material
2: terms. This is not something that just happened yesterday. This is something that has been sold to us over the past hundred years by those that want to make a whole lot of money. Now that's what I call a good-looking car. You have this thing that you were obsessed about, but then the new version comes out, and now you no longer care about the one you have. In fact, the one you have is a source of dissatisfaction.
1: People are beginning to recognize that they've maybe been tricked.
2: There is no out until you become aware. You're not gonna get happier by consuming more. Ready? I was born ready. There's nothing wrong with consumption. The problem is compulsory consumption. We're tired of it. We're tired of acquiring things because that's what
1: we're supposed to do. When I heard about minimalism, it wasn't about just getting rid of my stuff. It was about taking control of my life and stop being told what to do and actually deciding what I wanted to do. When I first started reducing the number of things in my life, I found out that I had 51 things in the entire world.
0: We've probably sold or donated at least 90%
1: of our staff. As I started to move that stuff out, I was able to finally realize what I had sacrificed.
0: I don't know what the most common three words are in American homes. I don't know if it's I love you or if it's I want that. This
1: same thing that's not making us happy is also causing the degradation of our habitat. We're going to have to give up a lot. The secrets of a lot of that we're not actually going to, able to miss.
2: What I found with minimalism is it's a way of saying, let's stop the madness.
1: When you recognize that this life is yours, and that it is your one and only, and when that seeps directly in your bones, and you recognize that this is it, everything changes.
2: Thanks, Mark. Let's pray together. Father as we look at this subject of how we care for our souls surrounded by so many material things in this world that you made and which many of which are good and have advanced humankind and the things that we can do as human beings but yet we also recognize that we live in a society and culture where there is pressure to have more and more and more and more. And as we think this evening about the effect that that has upon our souls, then we pray that we might hear your still, small, gentle whisper, calling us home and calling us to be different. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this evening we're continuing our series looking at the subject of soul care. And how do we care for our souls? That was a trailer for the award-winning documentary, Minimalism. And in that documentary, and I would commend it to you to have a look at it and have a think about the questions that it provokes. The producers seek to address how in the West, and it applies as much in the UK as it does in the US, or it does in Australia, or New Zealand, or Singapore, how we in the West are affected by this desire for more and more, and the ways in which that desire for more and more things has actually led to an increasingly unhappy society. About four or five years ago, one guy wrote a book called Affluenza because he identified that the more he talked to people in the so-called civilized West, the more unhappy He observed that we were. The reality is that as human beings in the West, we have more choices than ever before. Most of us are overwhelmed by choice, even before we've left the breakfast table. So whether it's tea or coffee, whether it's caffeinated or decaffeinated, whether it's Kenyan or Brazilian or Peruvian coffee, whether we're going to have a cappuccino, macchiato, latte, flat white, macchiato, one of those funny things, skinny, doobry what's-its, we're clueless and we're overwhelmed by choice. The author Bill Bryson observed this on his return to America after spending 20 years living overseas. He said this, Abundance of choice not only makes every transaction take 10 times as long as it ought to, but in a strange way actually breeds dissatisfaction. The more there is, the more people crave. And the more they crave, the more they, well, crave more. And you have a sense of sometimes of being amongst millions and millions of people needing more and more of everything constantly infinitely, unquenchably. Another journalist, Joe Queenan, who's a writer for the New York Times and GQ magazine, has criticised what he calls our culture's inability to accept the ordinary. We insist every experience be a watershed, every meal extraordinary, every friendship epical, every concert superb, every sunset meta-celestial, nothing can ever again be exactly what it was in the first place, ordinary. I don't know about you, but sometimes I look at other people's Facebook posts and think, do they have a normal life? Do they have an ordinary life? Because everything that they post day after day after day seems to be the best, the most fantastic, the best cup of coffee, the best meal, the best, the best, the best, the best. And I get exhausted just watching their Facebook thread. Psychiatrists and sociologists have identified what they call the Paris effect. A Wall Street Journal article described the experience of many tourists from Japan and China arriving in Paris, quote, expecting a place full of romance, beauty, and wealth. Instead, they find pavements peppered with cigarette butts and aggravated commuters in packed metro trains. For some, the shock is too much to bear, prompting them to seek medical help. For symptoms that may include irritability, fear, obsession... Depressed mood, insomnia, and a feeling of persecution by the French. In extreme cases, the only remedy is a one-way ticket out of France. As somebody observed, the only problem with Paris is the Parisians live there. Now, there's this dislocation between what we expect and the reality of what life is really like. Our culture tells us that our lives should be fantastic. Advertisers sell us products that if only we have this, if only we have that, then our life will be materially better and improved in quality. The more recent smartphone that we have, and it's not lost on me the irony that I'm preaching from an iPad uh, this evening, but whatever the, the product is, whatever it is, the, the latest gadget that we have, it's the newer it is, the better, we're told. And the more we have, the happier we will be. But the result, according to sociologists and psychiatrists and psychologists, never mind theologians, is that actually the more we have and the more choice we have and the more access we have to what we haven't got, the worse we feel. We've observed, haven't we, in the last 18 months or so, both in America and in the UK and across parts of Europe, this sense of a whole class of society feeling left out. It's one of the consequences of globalisation. Everybody else is getting better. Everybody else is getting more, and I'm not getting my fair share. I'm being left behind. Whatever you may think of Donald Trump, his his uh, electoral campaign fed in brilliantly to that way of thinking in a certain section of society in the United States. There was this huge swathe of white, lower middle class and working class uh, voters who just felt left behind. And time after time, in rally after rally, what did Donald Trump do? He said, I will bring your jobs back. I will bring those jobs back from India. I'll bring those jobs back from China. I will bring these jobs back to places like Pittsburgh and Pennsylvania and all these great mining and industrial states where if things had just moved out, he promised that he would bring them back. Well, the next four years we'll see whether he can deliver on that promise. But how do we as Christians, if we claim to be followers of Christ... How do we care for our souls when we live in that society? When we live in that culture that bombards us with messages that if we wear this particular pair of jeans, if we wear this particular perfume or aftershave, if we have this particular tablet or smartphone, somehow our life will be better. How do we care for our souls... When the world around us says that our souls are incomplete without this and this and this and this how do we resist the constant demand for more individually and corporately well in a minute i want to look at how the apostle paul had come to that place in that reading that emily read to us a few moments ago from philippians but just to begin with i want to ask two church members um, Di and Charlie, if they would join me uh, up here. And uh, Di and Charlie are two people, um, I hope, who have thought about this uh, a bit. And uh, I just want to ask them some very practical questions. Because I can give you the theory, um, but actually here are two people um, who have thought it out and tried to apply it into their lives. So how would you each describe how have you decided to allow your faith to shape your attitudes towards consumerism? Di.
1: Um, I think for me, it's about uh, the uh, living out is the overspill, if you like, of the inward. And so for me, um, the closer I get to Christ, the um, closer I get to wanting to be with Christ and with God, the more I see of uh, the fragile planet that um, he's created and loves, and um, the more I want to be a part of something that um, treads gently on that planet. Uh, And so, for me, it's about recognising the things that help that and the things that don't. Um, I think I probably think in three currencies. So I think in a currency of money, uh, of carbon, and of care. So some things, like cycling, are great because... They do all those things. They're good for being cheap, they're good for the climate, uh, and they're good for caring for me and for others in different ways. Um, and other things are less good, and so I want to do less of those things. Charlie?
0: I think the first thing to say is that it's almost like coming to Alcoholics Anonymous to say, <laughs> I am a consumer, you know, and that I think thinking about coming here today, I want to sort of say I don't have this all sussed in, in, in any way at all, and... Um, and to think about what, it, what are the lies that consumerism tells us and that it, it puts us, as you've said already, and in that film as well, it puts us at the center and seeking satisfaction in the collection of more and more things, and, and it's quite self-involved. And so in terms of thinking about how my faith might counter that, then it is as I saying it's coming back to God, to seeking actually our identity is in him that I am a child of God, not a child of stuff and of materialism. Um, And as we seek God, we realize more and more of his character and his call for us to seek out the kingdom of God, and that's in serving other people. And as you seek to serve others and love others, as Christ calls us to, we realize that actually the ways of our consumerist society are really harming those particularly that God really cares for, the oppressed, the marginalised people that through through these systems of materialism are really harming. Um, So it's really hard, but I think in in trying to seek God more, um, but recognising that it's hard, you know, surrounded by that every day.
2: So how has that thinking affected very practically things like your bank balance and your wardrobe and a bit more abstractly your soul?
1: Um, it goes both ways with the bank balance. Um, <laughs> uh, I maybe um, have slightly less income because I choose to, because my expenditure is less, um, because I choose not to spend quite so much, some days anyway, um, and, um, and yet sometimes I spend a little bit more because I buy some fair trade stuff. Um, so it kind of goes both ways with that. In terms of my wardrobe, um, it's never been great. <laughs> But I can tell you a really bad story of what happened in the autumn. uh, We went to the supermarket and I saw this coat and I thought, oh, this would be quite nice to have this nice new coat. I could wear it for work. It's comfy. So I thought, I'll just buy it and take it home and see. So I took it home. I thought, how many coats do I have? So I thought, I'll just go through all the cupboards of my house. I found I had 10 coats already. So I put them all on my bed and I thought, how many coats do I really need? And I looked at one and I thought, I really need that one and I don't need the other nine, and I really don't need this other one. So in the end, I took one back to the shop and sent two to the charity shop, and I still have eight. So I've got seven more <laughs> than I need, but I've got less. So if we need a coat, <laughs> to die to your woman. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. I mean, In terms of practicalities,
0: I currently live in the very lovely Stockbridge. Um, so we're very lucky in Edinburgh in terms of around clothing. Is a fantastic charity shop, and I'm a big charity shop. Because I, I do like clothes and I enjoy being able to express nice colours and look trying to look nice you know in what I wear and and try not to do too much of that but you know enjoying that side of things and so looking at more fair trade products but also um charity shops and, and recycling more and more um, but I think one thing that I wanted to share and it was um, a wise story from Alison Strang actually I don't know if she's here um, this evening um, but a few she years is. ago she is okay she's the one going <laughs> sure red back there, there. <laughs> um, a few years ago, we were preparing a seminar for women walking with God, looking at the pursuit of justice and what that looks like in our own lives. Um, and she challenged me with this thought that, you know, if we <coughs> were to walk into a shop in Prince's Street tomorrow and see a lovely cardigan with a pretty uh, embroidery pattern on it, it's probably for most of the women, but maybe some men that might enjoy embroidered cardigans. I don't know, might be hipster and in. Rich is good on embroidered cardigans. <laughs> yeah. <these>. Yeah. <laughs> Um, We may have had a bad week at work, we may have just been paid and think actually, you know, I I deserve something new, something a bit nicer. If we walked into that shop at the same time and looked to the left of the room and there was a small ten-year-old Indian girl there embroidering that pattern onto the cardigan, I'm sure all of us in the room would think again. And for me, that's been a challenge over the last few years of making that connection between what we buy in terms of our clothes, our food. In every part of supply chains and market systems, there are people. And and that's been, for me, trying to find out who are those people and making better choices so that actually our clothes tell more inspired stories of people in... Bangladesh who are getting paid a good wage for their clothes it's empowering young women rather than exploiting them as well so um it's not so practical but just to sort of for me that's been helpful in trying to make that connection between what we buy here and the fact that it impacts people around the world as well.
2: So if if we come practically to finish with um I mean I know a couple of people who decided not to buy any clothes uh during Lent um that's an interesting challenge that they're finding. Um, if you had one practical tip that you each wanted to share with, with all of us, because we're all in the same boat, most of us are wearing clothes, um, and most of us live in this society that we're surrounded by that's saying more, 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 more. What would be one practical step that we could take this week that would make a difference? Di.
1: Um, okay, it's 28 days, Easter, so I'd suggest giving away 28 things or times. So um, either things from your house or maybe um, do something like pick up a bit of litter or take someone who's lonely for a walk. So do 28 things or give away 28 things.
2: Give away 28 things. And then,
1: oh, sorry. Oh, another one. And then to reflect on that, I think, you know, it's good to reflect on what you've done. You know, it's not a harsh asceticism we're looking for. It's more something about um, Jesus who let go of everything and found new life. So seeing whether it fits with that.
2: Charlie?
0: Um. And for me, it's a small thing but going on a website. There's a really fantastic resource by Tier Fund called Lifestyles, and you can also download an app, and it suggests simple, small acts like reading an article about ethical clothing or suggesting you do a campaign action to call on your MSP to do something related to fairly traded products or practical things like giving something away. So I would recommend that as a sort of resource for further
2: inspiration. Great. Well, thank you very much. Give a round of applause. And the reality is that different things will affect different ones of us. Um, So it might be using a a reusable coffee cup, for example. Maybe you you go into, a whether it's a chain or whether it's a a smaller uh, coffee shop in Edinburgh. And maybe something as simple as taking a reusable cup rather than one of their plastic cups. Um, Something like that, something actually you get, um, I know of at least a a couple of coffee shops in uh, Edinburgh, that if you take one of those reusable cups, I call them sippy cups, but they're not, um, (laughs) you you get the coffee at about half price uh, because they're not paying for one of their own cups. So it'll be different things for different ones of us. If you think back to that passage that Emily read for us from Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul was able to make this remarkable claim in verses 12 and 13 of Philippians chapter 4. He said, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or living in want. Now, if you think about his life, He had lived through extreme highs and spectacular lows. Paul had impeccable credentials as a member of the Jewish elite. He was a a Pharisee, a Sadducee, he was a Hebrew amongst Hebrews. When he became a Christian, his experience became very different. As a Christian leader, he'd seen the other side of life. He was given the uh, 40 lashes five times. He was beaten with rods three times. He was shipwrecked three times, and he was stoned physically with boulders once. And Paul says, whether it's living the life of a Jewish Pharisee where I have plenty, or whether it's being beaten with rods or receiving 40 lashes five times... I'm wondering where my next meal is coming from. I've learned the secret of being content. And Paul says very deliberately that he's had to learn it. And he he deliberately chooses this word contentment. And he, he says, verse 11, that he's learned it intellectually. And verse 12, he says that he's learned it experientially. And what he's doing is he's deliberately referencing something that his contemporaries claimed that they could offer. There was a group of of philosopher called Stoics. Um, We talk about people who were Stoical and Stoicism. Well, the Stoics were a group of philosophers in the ancient world, and they claimed this word contentment, the Greek word was autarkia, was found through self-sufficiently, it was a bit like um, Buddhism today. Uh, where you do away with um, the idea of desire itself. That's, that's what Buddha, uh, his conclusion, came to. He said, if you do away with desire itself, then you do away with evil, and you find this uh, place, nirvana, which literally means a blowing out. Now, Buddhism says, and just like Stoicism did in the ancient world, that you find contentment from within. The Christian faith says quite the opposite. The Christian faith says that contentment, or peace, is the word that we would use. And the Hebrew word shalom has four um, aspects to it. Peace with God, peace with ourselves, peace with other people, and peace with creation. Paul says that can't be found actually from within. It can only be found from outwith with ourselves because did you notice when Emily wrote, read the last verse what Paul says verse 13 I can do all things through him through Christ who gives me strength so of myself I'm not going to find contentment peace in here just by looking deeper and deeper inside by being more and more quiet and empty myself, which is what Eastern meditation and and Eastern Buddhism um, and, and Hinduism says. It says you can't do it that way. You can't do it by going deeper into yourself. The only person who can give you peace, contentment, shalom, is actually from outside of yourself. Paul says, I can do all things through him, Christ, who gives me strength. Or as one church leader, Matt Chandler, put it this way, we learn contentment not primarily by learning coping skills or response strategies through times of difficulty, but by learning just how all-surpassingly good our gracious God really is. We learn by learning just how all-surpassingly good our gracious God really is. So it's to echo the words of that song that we were singing earlier on. God is a faithful God. God is a kind and gracious God. And the more we realize how good God is and how faithful God is, then that enables us to be filled with the peace that only he can give. The more we realize who God is, the more it puts into perspective who we are and the more it puts into perspective where our world is. Paul says that he would learn whatever the circumstances, humbling, the NIV translates it as in need, or abounding in plenty in the NIV. He's learned that whatever the circumstances are, to be content simply because of who Jesus is. And if we're honest, that's how we care for our souls, our hearts, our minds, and our lives, by seeing Jesus for who he really is and how much he loves us. That's where Rich started us off at the beginning of this service, by reminding us how much we're loved. By reminding us how much value and how much worth God puts upon your life, upon my life, upon every single human life that has ever existed in this world. Most sin occurs when we either forget or we deliberately choose not to remember who God is. When we either forget or we deliberately choose not to remember who God is, that's when most sin occurs. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is if you remember who Jesus is, If you remember how good and gracious and kind and powerful and loving and patient and generous God is, if you realize how much you love you, how much he loves you, if you realize how much you're loved, then that will give you the strength to resist, to resist the culture that says you need this, you need that. That your value or your worth is determined by the age of the car that you drive or how trendy the label is that you wear on your clothes or the aftershave or the perfume that you put on today that that ultimately is not where we get our identity or our value or our worth from but ultimately that comes from god himself who values you, not because of anything that you've done, but simply because of who you are, and more importantly, because of who he is. God loves you, and God loves me, and God loves every single human life that has ever existed for one simple reason, because of who he is. I was reminded of a quote, famous quote, from a missionary called Jim Elliot, who died within weeks of um, meeting the tribespeople in South America that he had come to share Jesus with. And he and his colleagues were, were butchered to death uh, by the side of a river in the 1950s. And what they found in his journal were these words, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. To gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Our society says that what you have makes you important, that what you own makes you valuable. Sometimes it's more revealing about what owns you or owns me that shows where our hearts are. And the challenge this evening is to guard our souls, to guard our hearts by realising that ultimately our identity, our worth and our value comes from what God thinks of us. And he thinks the world of us. He thinks more than the world of us. He thinks the universe of us. He thinks eternity of us because that's why he gave his only son. We're gonna continue to think how we're gonna respond this week as we seek to live different lives in the society and culture that we live, not by withdrawing completely and becoming monks and nuns, maybe not by taking a vow of poverty, but in the midst of the world in which we live, thinking how do I care for my soul and how do I ultimately remember what God thinks of me rather than what the world around tells me who I am.